Bill is a failed skydiver and a bear sometimes he runs. Ben's always traveling, an occasional beach bum. Phil talks a lot, Ben not at all. It's BHP Town Hall. Random guests, alcohol, BHP Town Hall. Ben created Eye on Off, he's a comic book fanatic. Phil made Pyro CMS, he's probably in a kayak. Phil talks a lot, Ben not at all. It's BHP. Town Hall. Random guests, alcohol, BHP, Town Hall. Hello, welcome to episode 44 of the PHP Town Hall. You have myself, Ben Edmonds, and Phil Sturgeon is nowhere to be found because he's in England somewhere drinking cider. We're joined tonight, or I am joined tonight, by uh, Mike Stowe and Amanda Folsom. Welcome, guest. Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Mike. That's that's it. <laughs> Amanda, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm Amanda, and I am potentially more eloquent than Mike. Um, I am a developer evangelist at PagerDuty, and okay, maybe I'm not as eloquent as Mike. <laughs> I liked it. That's well done. I'm just amazed by by your intros here. So uh, let's try this. Mike works at MuleSoft, right? What the fuck do you do for MuleSoft, Mike? Uh, so I work as a developer relations manager at MuleSoft, which means I do literally nothing most of the day. Uh, just don't tell my boss that because I like my job. Uh, this is recorded publicly on air. Yeah, they're probably watching right now. Um, Shame is a turtle. Now can we start over? Like, Is there like a radio switch? <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll edit this out because we don't actually edit, but we say we do. So yeah. Okay, that, that's perfect. Wait, what? <laughs> Amanda, you work for PagerDuty. What do you do there? I do. So I am somewhere between a developer evangelist and a product manager. So the product that I'm basically managing is community. And cool. Yeah. She actually does work. So, uh, yeah, well, debatable. Depends on the day of the week. I don't do work on days ending and why. Those are tough days, though. Yeah. So you're both in the same office, right? Mike, can you see Amanda from where you're sitting? Because it looks like you're kind of looking over your desk when you talk to her. We're we're within yep. heckling this. <laughs> <laughs> we we had to get face to face for you know a showdown here just to to make it legit. Right. Do you have the phone bats just in case? We don't, but we should. I'm sure I can put in a rep for those. Yeah, Peter said no. Guns would be good. We can um, just like I'm in a lovely Laquinta in Alabama right now. It's, it's pretty luxurious. I, I'm with her on this all the time. <laughs> um, the company's actually based in Montgomery, Alabama. Oh, okay. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. No, no, it's not. Not at all. <laughs> okay, it's really hot and humid, but the state is pretty cool. No, no, it's not. <laughs> I'm trying. Yeah. I'm from here. I can say definitively it's nothing nice about it. Why I left. This no, I've, I've driven through, and I feel like that was maybe enough. For all those of you watching for Alabama, MuleSoft does not agree. We love your state. We love you guys. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> uh, I, that was a pretty good, uh, pretty good quote, there, Amanda. Uh, I driven through Alabama once, and I think that was enough. So I'm sure I'm going to hear from our HR manager about that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, let's talk about APIs. Uh, have either one of you heard of these 
PAIs. No. Um, Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about this? PIAs? What? <laughs> I'm, I'm confused. What's, what's the question? Uh, what's a PI? What's, what's an API? Oh, what's an API? It's just start from scratch. Start from scratch, Mike. No. Um, so, all right. I actually so got this. We all. Oh, you got this. Let's do yes, it. I got this. So, a lot of people think that APIs stand for Application Programming Interface. It's actually an awesome protocol indicator. This is what I've determined because based on the protocol you're using, if you're using an API, it's pretty awesome. What protocol will that be? So? No, it could be HTTP, it could be a co-app, it could be, it could be SOAP. I mean, it just depends on the API you're using. It could be Java, which isn't really a protocol, but... Is that a protocol? No, that's not a protocol. Get out of here, Mike, you're drunk. I, I am, but what? No. No, so, like, that's the thing, though. When we talk about APIs, so people think about REST APIs or HTTP APIs. An API is an application program interface. It can be... An API that's a programming API, again, talking to a Java language, talking to Java library. It could be a PHP library API. It could be a web API. It could be a device API. So, I mean, it's, it's just anything that connects anything to something else. It's the messenger. Right. That's my serious answer. That's the only one you'll get for the day. I agree. All right, that was um, way too that, serious for this podcast. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, I apologize. That's serious. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'd agree with that, but I think this whole Internet of Things movement, marketing buzzword thing, has kind of started to redefine it as web-specific, which is unfortunate because it's not, but I think that's kind of what people are starting to think when they hear of API. Well, and again, like even the web, like we get, we get stuck in the HTTP side, you know, there's, there's a new co-op protocol, which is really interesting, and just for IoT devices. So, I mean, as we yeah. think about APIs do span beyond HTTP, I think for most of us, especially in the PHP world, uh, we, we focus on, you know, HTTP. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of stuff like with robotics. They have their own APIs there. Uh, and I mean, really think about it. Database interactions are all APIs. They're just uh, different. Mm -hmm. Yes, the human API is the worst interface in the world. <laughs> yes. The thing about APIs is it has to be a contract, though. That's my that's my only feel is it's a contract between you and a program. And like a good contract, it shouldn't be changing. Uh, somebody should tell Facebook about this idea. Yeah, for that. <laughs> I have no comments. <laughs> I'll comment on that. Good luck. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, Mike and I have different opinions on versioning and whether or not versioning is okay. Oh, let's find this out. All right, go. Versioning. <laughs> so... In general, Mike is correct. You know, it is a contract. You should be careful about what changes you're making. Um, make sure not to do breaking changes. But at the same time, you know, if you have, like, the shittiest of shit API and you just want to burn and start over, like, that's okay. And I think people are kind of afraid to do that. All I heard in all that was Mike is right. So I'm just going to stick with that. Versioning is it, it's necessary. It's something you should plan for because you're going to have to do it. But too many people go into building APIs and saying, I'm going to build this API, and I'm going to just get a minimal viable product, and then I'm going to version it and do something better. And that's not what APIs are about. You should get out your MVP, but your MVP should be your foundation. Everything you build should be extendable and flexible. And if you go with the idea that, hey, look, I'm going to just version it later, what you're really saying is, I'm going to write a whole bunch of crappy code, give it to customers and say, hey, guys, we don't care that much, and we're going to make you do a bunch of work later. Good luck. Uh, yeah. So. It's a it's a necessary evil, you know. Plan for it, 
but everything you do when building your API should be designed to avoid it. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, the version, version, version approach to these sorts of things just doesn't work. So I think people kind of sit in two camps where they either want to version heavily or they don't want to do it at all. And I think that there's a happy medium that we can find here um, where we can kind of let people know that versioning is something you should try not to do too often, but it's also not a completely scary thing. Yeah, I mean, just, just to add to that, there are times you have to version, but people oftentimes underestimate the cost of versioning. You know, uh, my last job, I was a developer evangelist. Uh, we launched a new version. My entire job was to get people to go from the old version to the new version. Uh, you know, we went from an old RPC to this beautiful REST API, XML to JSON, and in a year, I think I got four people to upgrade. Oh, you know, sorry. yeah, nobody wants to upgrade. You know, maybe you should talk about your incompetence on the <laughs> yeah. mic. Well, everybody knows about that, so I'm not worried. No, sure. I mean. The first thing is it's very hard to get people to switch versions. So what that means is now you have two versions you have to support. Now you have two versions you have to maintain. If you have bug patches, you have to fix them both places. Because developers aren't going yeah, to switch. Yeah, so the way I usually try to approach it myself is I think of, like, the API, the current API is hitting the current version. I'm, I'm pretty big on versioning, actually. But each version before that's a snapshot, and it doesn't necessarily get updates. And maybe you just say, here's the line. It's not our current API, but... It's a snapshot that's out there, kind of like your docs. So you mm -hmm. probably want to keep like each version of your docs out there, but they're snapshots and they're not updated. And then your current docs are what you have right now. Um, so I, I try to view it in that way. So the old API is out there. You can use it as it was. It might have broken pieces. We might document the broken pieces. We might not. Unless there's like a security issue with it, right? Right. Um, it's just going to be a snapshot of where you left off on it. So say V2, V2.5. That's just a snapshot of v2.5. Then v3 comes out, you're going to push users to v3. Anytime they just hit like api.neosoft.com, they're going to go to API, like API v3. But if you have bug fixes or whatever, those probably won't hit 2.5. If you have the security fix, that might bump it to 2.6, but it's still going to be sort of a snapshot at basically where you left it, except for anything critical. Yeah, I mean, you, you have the snapshots, but then you also have your uh, critical customers. Um, you know, again, the, the more people you have on your API, you know, eventually you're going to have 10,000 people using V2 and 10,000 people using V3, and that's still a relatively small scale. You know, you're basically telling these 10,000 people that take it as it is, or you have to upgrade. But what if there's a bug with the API uh, that's not working? What if you change something on your platform and it adversely affects that API? You still have to maintain that for those users, unless you deem that those users aren't necessary. Uh, and then there's still a support issue where people call in. Uh, you know, and I joke about this, but this is it's a true story. I had a person call in. And I asked them which version of the API they were using. And the reply was, I'm 100% serious, your version. <laughs> like, well, are you doing, like, how's it work? And they're like, well, I do a post request and I get back data. I'm like, do you get back XML, JSON? And they said, well, I'm actually calling for the developer. So I'm really not sure what you get back. And it took, you know, again, incompetence here on my part, but it took probably 15, 30 minutes to figure out which API they were using and then try to support that. And then the end result was, well, that's a V1 feature that's not supported in V2. Right. And so you, you, get, you get all these issues that versioning, I mean, it's something you have to plan for again, it's, but it's also very expensive. And people forget the cost of versioning uh, and what it brings. Because even with docs, yeah. like with the doc, you release a new product, obviously, as they're using a new product, they want to know what the documentation is. With an API, they're not necessarily using your new product. because There's no reason for them to upgrade um, for, for most of your customers. They have what they need from your API as it is. 
Well, you have to ask yourself too, though. But if there's no real reason for them to upgrade, what's the point? Why are you changing the API? If there's no reason. Is it well, and, and that's just a format change or a bug fix? That's probably should be like a dot release. Yeah, yeah, and we have people that you know do things like that. We have people that you know they add new components or they do a rewrite. For example, I go from RPC to REST, and I add new features. I go from XML to JSON. I add new features, but for a lot of people, they weren't using those new features anyways. Those new features are new. They're not critical. And really, if I want to use those new features, I can just add the new API to that section of the application versus having to go back and redo all the work I did to implement in the first place. Right. And that's where, that's where we see the trouble with getting people to upgrade, is why, why redo the work if it's working? Uh, I think it helps if your new API version offers something new and exciting. Um, we're doing that at PagerDuty currently, where we, we have our existing API, uh, but we're actually going to release a different version that's going to support some additional things that we hope people will, uh, will jump on. We hope it's exciting enough for people to start adopting. Um, we're under no illusions that everybody's just going to magically switch, though. Um, we're very much aware that we're going to have to continue supporting and documenting uh, V1 because people are still using it, and they're not going to switch if they're just doing basic integrations. And also, don't do minor versioning. Like, that kills me. Like, why in API do you need minor versioning? Like, are, I, you added data. That's fantastic. I don't care. How minor are you talking about, though? Because, like, I would consider, like, a 2.1 and 2.2. Those could be, you know, security fix between the two. But for the security fix, do I care? Because it either is like your data inputs are changing, then yeah. But but if my data inputs are changing, then it's no longer a minor version because you've broken backwards compatibility. That's a good point. Yeah. Like that's what I'm just saying. Like if it, if it, if you're doing it, if it doesn't change backwards compatibility, you don't need to version it. If it's changing backwards compatibility, like you said, it happens. There are times where we have security issues or things that need to change, um, which is why we push for you know design first for APIs and prototyping and testing before you do that, but uh, people, uh, part of the problem is we see a lot of people treating APIs like desktop applications, where it's like, I worked at a company, um, again, where we had version 1, version 2, version 3, and version 10. We were like, hey, let's just skip like five versions because it sounds better. The PHP uh, core developers? No, no. <laughs> we only skip one version. Um, you know, but it's like people do the API, it's like, well, this is great, but I'll get version 2 out there. No, you don't need version 2. What you need is you need a strong API that's going to last. If you do your API correctly, five years down the road, you'll still be on version one. I think it's being very optimistic, but you hope that you're still on version one. It's tough to do. I mean, it's, it's not easy to do, but like I said, if you do it correctly, you should be able to, and, and that's one of the reasons why we talk about like REST. REST is designed to be as flexible as possible, even though it's kind of a pain, so that five years down the road, you can still use that. When we have a new content type format out there, you can use that new content type without breaking backwards compatibility. We can talk about content types. <laughs> Actually, let's, let's talk about uh, how do you approach versioning? Are you a fan of the version URL or a header or what? Both of you, I guess. Now we're in the chaos already. Yeah, now it's on. <laughs> All right, uh, so usually for me it depends on if it's a HADOS API or not. If it's not HADOS, I'll throw it in the URL. If it's HADOS, I'll throw it in the, the header. Of course, um, I'm a fan of HADOS, but I wouldn't say I'm like a... Phil uh, Sturgeon models of it's not rest on Zetados. Kind of crazy. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Mike? I'm in the same boat. Uh, so I like the URL uh, most of the time. And part of the reason for that is I think the header gets a little too bloated sometimes. Especially as we talk about adding like Hadios and having the different things. Because like, uh, the URLs don't get bloated. <laughs> well, yeah, the URLs don't. <laughs> um, but, but that, that way with the URL. You can do like a base and say, okay, I'm always on version one versus I can switch from version one to version two to version three uh, to version 10, which may be a good thing. 
but it may cause confusion, um, especially if you go from resource to resource. Uh, but honestly, I think as long as you're putting an explicit manner that says this is what version you're on and it's consistent, I don't think it matters. Um, I, I'm not I'm not a fan of making a custom header, but like put it into the, like the content type or within the URL, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with. Yeah, I'm also not a huge fan of the, the custom header. I think it's just adding another layer of pain. Um, and I know that a lot of developers actually don't enjoy that either. So I tend to advise people not to do that. So what do you prefer, though, than the URL or header? Uh, I'm kind of in the same camp as you. It really depends on my audience, too. I found that uh, for basic things and with, with things that a lot of like entry-level developers are using, it's much easier for them to see the URL. Um, for things that are doing chaos, then I, I tend to put it in header. What are you doing, Mike? I am doing nothing. I saw that notification. What notification? <laughs> that one. <laughs> so, way to turn this off is an organizer. We don't know how it works. I'm going to try to focus. It's a very professional fucking podcast here, people. Well, this is why I feel like my answers were too professional, so we had to mix it up a bit. <laughs> yeah, there we go. All right, so. Hey, Yoss, what are your thoughts on that, since we kind of touched on it a bit? Uh, do you think it can be arrested without Hey, Yoss? Also, how the fuck do y'all say it? Because everyone says it differently. I don't know. I think if you can say words and get your general point across and have people understand it, then you're good. <laughs> uh, I go with Hey, Yoss. I agree with you. I, I, the Hey, Yoss, uh, the, yeah, just, it doesn't, but there's no definition for it. I mean, I don't, I don't see anywhere where it feels like this is pronounced. So I think you're okay no matter what you say. Like GIF, Jeff. Just a GIF. Yeah, versus GIF. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm not even going to get involved in that. I'm going to piss off 50% of the people watching this, no matter what you say. It's a GIF. It's undisputed now. We just said it. I like that. So I'm going to get myself in trouble here, Ben. I'm going to disagree just slightly. Uh, Since since Fielding created, you know, the design theory of rest, um, you know, and he made the comment on his blog that if you don't have hypermedia, it's not rest. Uh, I got to stick with him on this. Uh, it is a sub-constraint of the uniform interface. Uh, it's one of the key components. Uh, but but hypermedia goes beyond just hypertext links. It, it goes to the whole representation aspect. Um, and I think sometimes we, I think we've almost dumbed it down in trying to understand it. And we've, we've limited ourselves to understand the full capability of hypermedia. But yeah, if, it, if it's not hypermedia, it's not rest. Can I put a hole in your argument? Sure. So you said it's pronounced GIF. Yeah, the creator says it's Jeff. I was just saying something for the sake of saying something. <laughs> right, okay. A man of thoughts. Um, so I tend to agree, uh, but there are a lot of people who get all wrapped up in what's officially REST and what's not officially REST. And I, I tend to sit in the camp of, if you make an API that works and isn't a total pile of crap, then you're doing all right. <laughs> and if you're, if you're not including hypermedia, then don't beat yourself up over it. It's nice. Um, oh, heckling block. <laughs> Sorry, I disagree with that statement, but continue. <laughs> All right, children. <laughs> well, they're, they're mostly soft and squishy. Uh, but yeah, so I, I agree that it's it's not necessarily restful, but you can get restful life without it. And I think that for a lot of people's use cases, that's probably good enough. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree. You know, it's it, it doesn't have to be REST API. Like, you have to meet your need. I'm agreeing with you. Would you disagree with me? <laughs> <laughs> it, it doesn't have to be a REST API. Um, you know, with new software with, lar- with large enterprises, and 
everybody says we have to use rest or we have to do this. We have customers that still use soap. And that doesn't mean it's wrong. What they're doing is they're meeting their needs and their customer needs. And uh, MailChimp has one of the most successful API programs out there. They use an HTTP RPC API. Theirs isn't REST, uh, or at least it wasn't last I checked. You know, so it doesn't have to be a absolute REST you know, to the six constraints. Uh, it has to meet your needs. And with each one of the different types of APIs, there are trade-offs, and you should understand what the pros and cons of each of those are. All right, let's, uh, let's switch topics a little bit. So we have a, on the schedule, we have a Ramel Swagger fight. Let's do that. That's really all my. <laughs> oh, see, I don't know how to take this one by myself. So, I mean, all right, how about uh, what? What the fuck is Ramble? Wait, hold on, let me channel Phil. The fuck is Ramble, Mike? There we go. So, <laughs> I'm gonna do my professional answer now. Ramble is the RESTful API modeling language. It's a language that allows you to pro- programmatically design your API in a human-readable format. Uh, so no, uh, Ramble isn't. Gonna be there because I just totally killed my buzz. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you literally just left. Oh, he's back. Okay. No, so so what Ramble and Swagger are is their API specs, and their specs that allow you to really document your API uh, and share your API, and you can do a lot of cool things with that. Rather than having to create separate documentation and create separate tooling and create separate tests and create separate SDKs. Uh, by creating these specs, you can do all of that. Uh, Raml took a little bit different approach than Swagger initially. Raml was, hey, we're going to design first, so it meets everybody in the lifecycle of the API. Uh, whereas Swagger is, we have an API already existing. Uh, that's since changed. Now Swagger has great tools for designing your API as well. Um, the biggest difference uh, between the two is Raml has a cooler name. And, and I say that because my company is on the, the work group of the, the Raml team. Uh, but but also, RAML allows you to do things like code reuse. So you can set up templates for your resources and your methods and not have to retype the, that code every single time. Whereas Swagger, there's really no equivalent right now. Um, can you just copy and paste with Swagger? You, you can spec? Yeah, you can copy and paste, but the thing you possibly lose is consistency. Um, All right, so it won't keep it dry across APIs. Yeah, yeah, so it keeps it very consistent and standardized. And it just also keeps it more concise, whereas, especially the larger API, for example, you take a look at uh, Box's API, you know, it becomes a very long spec. So everything's nice and concise, everything stays the same. And rather than having to declare, you know, seven different response status codes per method, you just declare them in one place and they're automatically pulled in. Um, but my, my cheat to the answer is, it depends on what you're looking for. Uh, each spec has pros and cons. Um, if you go to mikesto.com, I repeat, that's mikesto.com, I feel like I'm advertising here. Uh, in case you missed it, MikeStow.com. No, uh, there's a, a, a spec comparison chart where you can click on that and you can see what's the difference between uh, RAML, what's the difference between Swagger, what's the difference between API Blueprint, uh, Waddle, IO Docs, uh, and really see which one meets your needs. Um, but I say I take a look at RAML or Swagger, and for myself, I just found that RAML has more tool, uh, more unique tools uh, to support your needs. Swagger has a larger community, has more tooling out there, but RAML offers some very unique tools that uh, I found uh, very convenient to succeeding, and it's also, I think, easier to get started with. Uh, but that's just one man's opinion. Now, is the tooling kind of built into the, the offering there, or is it third-party tooling? Uh, so it's all third-party tooling. So RAML is an open-source spec, uh, just like Swagger. Uh, so it's it's run by the community. It's, it's or, uh, run by a work group, and there are a whole bunch of different applications that have been built around to parse the spec and then build applications around it. So you have the API designer, uh, which allows you to design the RAML really an IDE experience. 
Um, you know, there's error validation. It offers tool tips, autocomplete. Uh, you have the API console, which, you know, Swagger has where you can basically see this is what the API looks like, uh, which is nice because you can see what it looks like as you visually design it. Uh, there's this amazing script called uh, Ramble to HTML for PHP, uh, which generates uh, multi-page documentation for your entire API uh, based on the Ramble. And then what makes it really unique is the API notebook. Uh, the API notebook lets you explore an API without having to know anything about the API. It also lets you give use cases to your users and say, if you want to, for example, find out who your last follower on Twitter is, here are the steps you take. Uh, what's really nice about those is the support aspect, where if somebody has an issue with your API, rather than saying new code and saying, hey, this is my code, and you go, I have no clue what your code does, this is only part of it, uh, I don't understand what the issue is, they can create their own notebook and send it back and say, look, I tried these steps, this didn't work, and here's the result I get. And you have an immediately reproducible scenario where you can say, this is what you did wrong, or we have a bug in our code that we need to fix. Uh, so it changes the way we handle support from being really hit or miss, let's guess and hope it works, to here's a reproducible use case that we can take care of right away. All right, so uh, so Phil's joining in via text, which I don't understand how that's better than just being here. But uh, he says, uh, the fuck is AnyPoint Studio? AnyPoint Studio. Uh, so AnyPoint Studio is MuleSoft's uh, product here, where MuleSoft is an API connectivity company. Uh, really what we try to do is let you connect anything to anything. So if you're trying to connect uh, to Workday, to Salesforce, to SAP, to any HTTP API, any SOAP API, heaven forbid an AS400 mainframe, a DB2, we provide an easy platform to let you do that. Uh, it started off as an open source project, evolved over time uh, to the company that we are today. Uh, and then on top of that, we've added uh, API tooling. So Aimpoint Studio lets you take your RAML file, import it through what we call API Kit, actually build out your entire API flow for you, and then you can literally drag and drop and say, oh, I want this flow to be connected to a database. Or I want this to connect to Salesforce. Right, so it uses RAML like, to the fun spec, and then does it do an export of the actual code, or what does it do at the end? Yeah, so Aimpoint Studio is uh, the designer for Mule. Uh, so what you do is you create a Mule uh, script, and, and that would be uh, put onto a server run Mule runtime. Uh, so Mule is actually created as an integration platform. Uh, again, a way for you to connect different things. It's mostly used by large enterprises. Uh, for example, we have uh, airlines when they merge and they need to connect their systems. They can use Mule so that when you buy a ticket, you get a single ticket, even though it's talking to multiple systems. It's a middleware, if you will. Uh, but there's an open source edition that anybody can use for free. Uh, it's developers.mulesoft.com. They can check it out. Um, it's just one way you can build your API with RAML. It's not the only way. Again, RAML is an open source spec. MuleSoft is one of the companies that back it, but so does the KS Software, who's one of our competitors. Okay. Um, cool. Amanda, do you have any thoughts on Ramble Swagger or any point? Um, sort of, but not really. I think um, it's really important to actually use one of these tools. I don't actually care which one you pick. I think it's just important that you pick one and stick with it, um, especially if you're going to get into spec-driven development, like Mike has on our list. So maybe we can get into that now. <laughs> uh, I like that answer. Uh, and <laughs> Let's go for it. Super important to actually sit there and design this on paper before you even start coding um, and get people involved in the process. And these these tools make it super easy to do that. You know, you can pass a spec around to your engineering team, to Twitter, to whoever, and get really valuable feedback before you even waste any time coding something that people are just going to have you change. Oh, I agree 100%. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's my thoughts. <laughs> Um, yeah, I expected a heckling block. No, there's no heckling. That's that's a great answer. Uh, but here's the problem: uh, we suck at long-term design, and I, I like I preach this over and over again. Um, 
all you have to do is look at your code a year later, and you can see for yourself that you know we don't always think through the long-term effects of what we're doing. And the same is true for APIs. If we're not involving our customers, our users right off the bat, and find out what their needs are, and we're not building it for two to three years down the road, it's going to fail. It's going to fall apart. Um, and once it goes in production, unlike an application, which we push out production and then we can update because there's no dependencies, API has too many dependencies. Once it's in the production, it can't change. You know, you're stuck with what you have. So you either do it right and meet those needs, or you end up versioning and spending all the time and money that goes with that and trying to onboard people with that. I have no clue what I just said. I'm not going to lie. Well, it's trade-off there, right? So you're, you're kind of advocating that you try to get every use case up front or you try to think ahead, but I mean, there's a cost associated to that. So you could spend two years trying to spec out the perfect API that'll last 10 years, or you could get something out the door that people can start using in three months. And yeah, shit might change. You can't always see the future. Um, if you're lucky, your company will grow and you'll do more things and new API endpoints, right? Well, that's why it's important uh, to understand what it is that you're building. Understand what your customers are saying. I'm not saying build everything in one shot and, and have a spec that covers every single thing because that's not possible. But what I'm saying is that what you want to do is understand, okay, we're building this API. Does it actually do what your customers want? Do the resources make sense to your customers? Because one of the things that kills APIs quickly is they're not usable. doesn't matter how good the code is. doesn't matter how well thought out and well intentioned it is. If they can't use it or it doesn't meet their needs, it's going to die. So that's the first step is involving your customers and saying, okay, what is it that we're actually building? And a lot of times what we do is we say, we're going to build an API. This is what it's going to do. And we jump right into code. And what we're saying here is take a step back, take two weeks. Uh, so we're not talking about two years. Take two weeks to say, okay, let's create a spec of the API. Let's understand what actions our users need uh, to do. And then let's create the spec and take it to our users and have them look at it and say, does this make sense to you guys? Or to our potential users say, does this make sense to you guys? Let's talk to other developers and say, guys, look at the spec. Can we build on top of this? Uh, especially in launching the API, think of it as building a house. You don't, you know, just put the roof on and say we're done. You know, you build a strong foundation first. And when you're doing spectrum development, you're essentially building a, the foundation every single time. And by building that foundation, when you want to add new features and new resources, you do the same process again. You have this strong API, and you say, now I want to add a uh, wish list resource. So we add our wish list. We can go through spec it, test it add on, and now we know that, now we have a strong foundation that's going to sit on, but it's strong, it's now part of that foundation. And so that's the idea behind Spectrum development, is not to say, let's spend two years trying to make the perfect spec, or let's make sure we have the perfect spec for this release, and for what our developers need, and also one that, just like when you write a class in code, is extendable and flexible enough that we don't get boxed in, you know, a year down the road. Uh, because you're right, things do change, and if you, you know, especially San Francisco startups, if your company starts as one thing and you pivot to another thing, that's where it makes sense to create a new API and to have that different version say, look, our platform has completely changed. But if you're doing the same thing still, you should be able to use that same API. Yeah, I think it's important to kind of put on your, your product management hat when it comes to things like this. You know, don't be afraid to do customer interviews or comb through feature requests to figure out what you need and use that as your baseline for doing something like this. But I think it's very important to do something like that and get it down on paper and get it in front of other people who are going to be using this, uh, preferably even outside of your organization, uh, before you even sit down and start coding. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we see a lot is we see companies that build APIs and then they send out and then they, they test it in the wild. And um, without naming any names, I know one company where they went through four different iterations of their API, where basically they threw away three other APIs because they, they, were, they want to try things that made sense to them. 
released it, and people were like, WTF, this makes no sense. Why are you doing it this way? Um, another API uh, just launched uh, that, that I was actually using today where they have a one resource. Uh, I'm going to change it up so they don't listen to this call and go, holy crap, he's picking on us. Um, for example, we'll say one resource called users, and then rather than a user ID, they have like a member ID. So now these aren't connected anymore. It's little things like that where, what about the additional resources you had? Now, do you call it a member ID? Do you call it a user ID? Is a member separate from a user? Uh, which, because it's as simple as it sounds, so they had to look up and say, wait, what is this? Is this what I'm looking for? And it's little things like that that we don't think about that actually set us up to, to fail long term. Um, and it's like building a car. You know, you build a car, you put all the pieces together, but if you have one bolt that's not in the right place, you're going to watch your tire go flying off. Um, it's, it's the same thing with APIs. Yeah. I mean, everybody who's a car mechanic is like, no, you have like four other bolts right there. What are you talking about? But you guys get the analogy. Um, I've, I've definitely seen similar things like that. And I found that as I sit down and actually write things down instead of, you know, opening a program and, and spinning up an API and like Laravel or Rails or whatever, um, it's, I, I find that I start to group things logically versus when I sit down to code it, it's just, it's all over the place and sometimes it ends up not making any sense. So I, I waste a lot of time. And I think that's uh, something like Rambler Swagger can save people a lot of time when it comes to, to things like that yeah, and uh, in terms of logical grouping. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree. And the other issue too is for small teams, it's not as big of a deal. If you're only one person working on API, you know how the API functions. But the second you bring in two, three, four, five, ten people, you're going to have different endpoints that function differently. You know, you're going to have things that have different data structures, not because it wasn't, it was the intention of the API, but just because they built it differently without realizing this is what it is. Uh, if you think if you jump into a complex class uh, in code and you start creating methods, your methods and your classes may look different than the rest of the framework's methods and classes. Same thing here. By having that spec, by having that source of truth, we have a roadmap where we can say, look, this is how it's supposed to work. This is what the data is supposed to look like. And there's no guessing that goes into it. There's no uh, fast line decisions because those, those are what costs us money down the road. Um, you know, again, I, I know of another company where they, they, they spent hundreds of thousand dollars, launched a new API. And a year later, they're saying, look, we have to launch a new version. You know, now do we spend a lot of time getting people obviously to upgrade, but now you have a new version on top of that all because we weren't thinking long-term and because it wasn't designed to be flexible enough. And, and that's what we're trying to avoid. Yeah. Um, I think it's useful even as a solo developer. Like if you're, if you're launching a thing and you're going to be the only person ever developing on it, like don't be afraid to scribble stuff down in a notebook. Like I, I'm a huge fan of that. Even if you don't want to go all out and use one of these, these tools to help you with your design, which I totally think you should, but if you're lazy, um, then, then don't feel obligated. Definitely, you should be okay with scribbling down in a notebook. Just do something. Get something on paper first before you get it out on the web. So kind of on that note, um, we have our spec, then we have the API. What do you do for documentation? Do you use tools for that? Um, do you use some kind of generator from your spec? Or what do both of you do for that? I'm lazy. Um, you know, it, if I don't have to write separate code and redo all of it, why should I? Uh, with Ramble, the thing I like about it is, again, you can generate all your documentation from the spec, but it's human-readable. As such, you can head off to your documentation team if you're lucky enough to have one, and your technical team can dump, uh, jump in and start writing the code or writing the code, writing the documentation for you. Uh, you can head off to your CEO if, if, heaven forbid, you want to and say, hey, I want you to write this uh, documentation. He could do it. Um, and that's what we're really trying to get to, too, is APIs are becoming more and more demand and more complex. 
You know, there's, there's all these different pieces. You have documentation, you have testing, you have interactivity, you have SDKs. We're trying to make it as simple as possible so you have one source of truth that handles all that uh, without having to keep your documentation up to date and in sync because, well, let's be honest, it's very difficult to keep your documentation up to date with your API if it's separate from your API. Yeah, um, definitely agree. And we're, we're getting bitten by that at PageDuty currently um, because our, our documentation is maintained separately from the actual API itself. Um, and we have an API guy who, who comes through and he's found a lot of the, the differences, which has been great. But I mean, it's, it's just time consuming. It's time consuming to have to comb through both the documentation and the API and find the differences. Um, and these tools are really great because they, like Mike was saying, they allow you to, to generate your documentation uh, but you can also do things like generate SDKs. So you can feed a spec into some of these tools, and it'll spit out SDKs in however many languages you pick. Uh, they're not going to be the most beautiful things in the world, but they're going to be workable. And you know, for for startups or or solo projects, like that's great. That's worth its weight in gold. So um, this is a PHP podcast. So do you have any tools you recommend for using Rammel with PHP or generating docs with PHP? Anything PHP specific for our listeners? Uh, so again, Raml is an open source community, so uh, there's some different contributions out there for it. Uh, there's two different PHP parsers out there, so you can actually get the PHP parser, uh, parse the Raml file, and you can do whatever you want with that. Uh, if you want to create documentation, uh, there's PHP for HTML. Uh, excuse me, Raml to HTML for PHP. Uh, that's really sad because I wrote that script. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, but that, again, creates a multi-level documentation site for you. It's all template-driven, so literally, you just go in and change the template, make it look how you want, and you have all your documentation right there and ready for you. Uh, so yeah, there, there's tons of tools out there. Uh, you can generate static HTML uh, if you want to put it on GitHub. Uh, if you're, I hate to say it, like a Ruby guy or a Java guy or a .NET guy, I, I know, don't give me that look, I'm sorry. You know, there's, there's tools for all that as well, so you're going to find a lot of resources out there, uh, regardless what your needs are. Yeah, I mean, he, he basically said what I would have to say on it. Um, Pretty much, it doesn't matter. Uh, the whole ecosystem is kind of agnostic, so you can pretty much feed it whatever and get whatever. <laughs> Go PHP. Yeah. All right. Um, so we're kind of running out of time. Let's try to get through a few things. We have another question from Phil. He said, "What is?" Well, he said, "The fuck is uh, Amazon API Gateway?" Does anyone know? <sighs> Let's not talk about that. Like, all right. No, no, it's not so, Amazon it's API. It's safe space, Mike. Safe space. We don't have to talk. It's not about a safe it. space. No, uh, so Amazon has uh, jumped into the API management market as well now. So you have uh, Layer 7, 3Scale, uh, Master, which is now Intel, IBM, uh, CX, which is Layer 7, uh, MuleSoft, uh, Microsoft Azure. Uh, now you have Amazon in there as well. So you have a whole bunch of different uh, providers for API gateways. Uh, Amazon is just entering that market. Um, which, which makes sense. I mean, they have a large cloud infrastructure and you know, they're trying to meet a need of their customers. And, and so I think it's a good move on their part, but it, it's essentially an API management system. Gotcha. All right. Any other API managers you recommend? Um, what about you, Amanda? Um, so I've actually never used any of these tools. Um, so I actually can't really speak about them. Well, that's, that's actually a lie. I've looked at MuleSoft because of Mike, but that's about as far as it goes. <laughs> So here's my uh, non-biased thoughts on an API manager. That's one thing that we as developers, we tend to overlook because we, we don't think we need it. We think it's at expense. And so we tend to skip out on it. Um, there's a lot of benefits to using an API proxy. First of all, you're protecting your architecture. 
second of all, you have all these security things that unless you're good at security, unless you've thought this stuff through and you're an expert, you shouldn't be trying to figure out the security aspects of protecting your API. Um, and even if it's not malicious, it could be something where a developer actually creates an infinite loop on Amazon, for example, you know, and that can do some damage to, to your architecture by taking your system down if you don't have the protection in place. Uh, so the short answer is I don't care what API manager you use. I mean, obviously, I'd love you to use MuleSoft, um, but you should have something. And if you're saying, look, I'm just a small scale or this is a personal project, uh, 3Scale offers a free uh, API management tool. You, you can use theirs for free. Uh, I think Amazon charges based on usage. That's one to look at. Um, you know, and if you're saying, look, we want to build an enterprise-grade API and we want to you know, really knock out of the park and have a lot of protection in place, um, then I would say you want to look at some of the, the bigger players like uh, Intel, IBM, MuleSoft. And if you say that, you know, I, I want one that, you know, also incorporates the flexibility that I can have it do some really cool things by building, having an ESP layer automatically built in. So maybe you can send reports to Salesforce from the API gateway, things like that. Uh, then you look at MuleSoft. Uh, or if you're like, hey, look, this guy's really cool. I, I love, you know, the Mule T-shirt. Uh, I think, you know, PHP Town Hall is the best. Then you definitely should be using MuleSoft just just because. Support, support the cause, right? Right, right, right. But, I mean, they're all good companies. They're all good managers. I'm actually with a man, not another used to a manager either. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we just we just don't see value in what you do for a living, like basically. Yeah. I, I see how it is. No, I have a solution for that. Uh huh. There's there's this great book that has a whole chapter. Mm. In well, we'll get there at the end. I promise. Right. Uh, <laughs> testing tools. What do y'all recommend for testing your APIs? Uh, so my latest and greatest thing has been using Fonsco, uh, and you should go check them out. They actually have a free dev tier, I believe. Um, they definitely have a trial. Uh, so definitely go check them out. I uh, I get that a huge plus as well. I'm a big fan of Runscope. Okay, I'm actually wearing my uh, my 200 OK shirt. Nice. Because <laughs> 200 is all we return, right? Yeah, um, that is the only status code you will ever need. And I'm sure Phil just screamed. I can hear him screaming from I, across. My I, test pass is all that matters, right? <laughs> I still think you need 200 and 500. Um, so the great thing about those specs again, Swagger, uh, Ramble. You say MuleSoft has a tool for this. I'm gonna just throw you off the podcast. Right now. <laughs> no, I, I can't do this. I'm actually gonna throw other names this time. Um, but no. Uh, so like, if you use a spec like Swagger, Ramble, there are open source tools out there. So for Ramble, there's a tool called Avail that will generate tests for your API based on your JSON schemas if you use those. Uh, so you're actually able to run the test without having to do any work whatsoever from the Ramble spec. Uh, there's also, uh, as Amanda mentioned, RunScope, an amazing company. Uh, there's API Science, which is a testing company that runs on Ram or Swagger. And then SmartBear runs on uh, Ram or Swagger. Uh, so there's several different tools out there you can use, uh, all great solutions. And again, it ranges from having open source tooling to uh, free to low cost tooling to more of your enterprise uh, solutions as well. Cool. All right. Um, well, we, we touched on it in a minute with the 200 OK. What are your feelings on responses with errors and status codes? <laughs> Start off with Amanda. How do you feel about 200 so, I think you should try to be as descriptive as you possibly can using the HTTP codes that are available to you. But at the same time, it's not Pokemon. You don't got to catch them all. Um, you don't need to incorporate every possible HTTP status code you can find. Um, just in general, I guess my advice to people is sometimes it's not 200 okay, so you shouldn't pretend like it is. Um, 
you know, if you can use 201, that's great. I see a lot of people who don't, but that, and that's okay too. Um, so in general, just, just be cognizant that a lot of errors and, and information can be provided through status codes. Um, and you definitely should not ignore that when you're designing your API. That's so fine. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree 100%. I mean, yeah, you don't okay. need to use every single status code out there. Uh, in fact, you probably shouldn't be using 418. I'm a teapot that often. Um, but you do want to be descriptive, and, and status codes are your first immediate response to the developer saying, this is what happened. You know, like Amanda said, if you do an update or you do a get, it should be 200. If you create something, if an object's created, it should be a 201. If you delete something and you're not returning data, give me back a 204 so I don't spend time going through the body and uh, trying to figure out what's wrong with my code. Um, you know, if I do a, a put or a patch and it's not updated, give me a 304. Let me know this did not succeed. Um, because again, they tell so much, you know, using, uh, you know, 400, uh, 401 for not authorized, uh, 405, 415, like things like that uh, are huge lifesavers because it tells us it's another way of saying this is exactly what happened and it makes the error message that easier to decipher. Yeah, and it can be useful If you're working with CDNs, then 202 might make sense. Mm -hmm. uh, meaning the server's accepted the job, but it's not necessarily been dealt with yet. Um, so it might be doing something. So it's just that people really need to be cognizant of the fact that we can explain an awful lot of information with HTTP status codes, and I think a lot of people ignore that. And don't, don't make them up. Like, unless you're working like pharmaceutical companies in Colorado, you shouldn't be turning to 420. I'm not naming any companies by name, but I'm going to check my uh, my Twitter right now, see if I got any cool updates. So I, I agree with both of you. Um, the one thing, too, I'd also encourage the listeners, make sure you document your return codes. I think a lot of APIs that you don't actually know what return codes you can expect for any given endpoint, and not every endpoint should support every return code. So you should definitely document what I should expect to see return from this, so both the success and the failure and everything in between. Yeah, and please, oh yeah, and please don't use 400 and 500 as catch-alls. Like the 500 is basically the, we don't know what happened, but something went wrong. But I see so many where they're like 400, and it doesn't actually fit the definition of 400 requests. So like Amanda said, understand the different response codes, what they mean, and then use the right one. I gotta catch them all. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. So, please don't take the, the Pokemon approach to HTTP desktop. <laughs> and that should be a shirt. It should be. It absolutely should be. So, if you uh, you Runscope people are listening, there's your next marketing campaign. <laughs> uh, that's going to be the tagline on Phil's book saying. Uh, speaking of books, so we all have books and we all like money. So, let's talk about our books. Um, Mike. You have a free book because you don't understand how the money works, apparently. Well, see, I, I figured that if I gave away for free, that more people would buy it, which means the commission would be that much higher. And then I realized that after Siri told me what you know something to buy by zero was, that that didn't work. <laughs> and Cookie Monster has been right. cooked. You are from Minnesota, right? I am, yes. Wait, what? <laughs> I don't get it. Okay, so a book. Uh, so I have a book. It's called Undisturbed Breast. Uh, it's really you had it fucking handy. You had it like within arm's reach to pull out like fucking Price is Right shit right here. Hold on, hold on. I think the Price is Right. Yeah. So uh, I did. I was waiting for this one the entire time. No. So it's called Undisturbed Breast. Uh, it really covers lots that we talked about, but uh, more so. Let's go back. Let's look at what it means to be building API. Why we're building the API? We are plan out the API doing Java updates, apparently pops up on my screen at random moments, 
uh, all the way to what's Hadios, what are the hypermedia specs out there, how do we document our API, how do we handle uh, resources, how do we handle methods, which SAS code should we use, all that wonderful junk. Um, and yeah, there's two ways to get the book. You can go to mulesoft.com slash restbook. Uh, that's mulesoft.com slash restbook. Uh, and you get a free version. You can download it in PDF format. Otherwise, if you're really generous or you prefer the hard copy, you go to amazon.com and you can purchase it uh, on there. All right. And Amanda, you are writing a book currently? Is that right? Yeah. Um, but just to give an endorsement for Mike, uh, I downloaded the book. I read it. It was great. You should totally check it out. Um, even if you are an API veteran, you will find some useful tidbits in there. Um, actually, plug it in my talks. When you say so, you downloaded the book, you mean you got it for free and made sure not to give Mike any money. Well, so when I got the book, there was not a print version available. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I'm working on a book that is, well, how do I describe this? So it's REST-specific. Uh, it doesn't have a working title just yet uh, because I am working with a publisher. And basically taking people from zero to API while trying to remain like framework agnostic, uh, doing a primer on HTTP and REST and how all of that sort of thing works, uh, very geared towards beginners. In other words, it'll be called So Much Better Than Mike's Book. <laughs> Mike's book for dummies. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, another shout out. Phil is not here today. Has a book uh, called Build APIs You Won't Hate. And it's, uh, it's this is the worst one out of these three. I can promise you. You, uh, you definitely shouldn't buy it. So I, I haven't it's read it yet, but the cover is amazing. I just want to say that right now. So, the cover uh, is very nice. It's the best part about it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Just like the theme song to this podcast, it all goes downhill <laughs> after you get past the intro. Womp womp. <laughs> no, Amanda, so, you read the book. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah, you read it. Tell us about it. Uh, it is very insightful. Um, I'm a little biased because I contributed typo fixes, so it's it's obviously the most amazing thing in the world at this point. <laughs> no typos. What's that? Zero typos as well. Well... I don't guarantee that. <laughs> uh, no, but it's, it's actually very great um, using the Laravel framework. Um, it kind of walks you through some of the, the restful theory, and then at the end of it all, you've got a working API. What's not to love about that? Okay. Um, we're out of time, so let's, let's power through some of these audience questions here. Uh, when endpoints data requirements start to get unwieldy, how do you prevent overloading the client with needless data? I think that's where the design comes in and it's so important, is if you're designing right off the bat and understand their needs, you're able to first off understand what data that they want back, what data you don't need to return. Um, you know, I was working with a company on their API where they return orders and they wanted to embed all the customer information in that. Uh, you don't need all the customer information because you have a customer ID and they can go to the customer's resource and pull that information. So give them the information that makes the most sense, is most commonly used. Um, but also understand what their needs are. And, and unfortunately, there's no perfect answer to that because you may have customers that say, I need this much data and customers that need much more data and they try to find middle ground and you piss off both of them. Um, one thing I've seen people do is add, you know, the ability to say, only give me back these fields. Uh, I think that's something you can do with your API that becomes a lot more complex, uh, but that may be a way to reduce the information you're sending back. But at the end of the day, by involving your uh, customers, your users in the design process for that, you're going to eliminate a lot of the unnecessary information, see what they're really looking for, which will save you from having way too much data. 
Um, I think if your API is big enough to send so much data that people get overloaded, you should probably look at allowing them to select which information they'd like. Uh, I'm a huge fan of that. All right, uh, next question here is, how would you or can you even handle transaction integrity with the RESTful API? So REST is not designed to handle transactions per se. REST is designed so that every call is a transaction in itself. Uh, if you need a highly transactional database or database API, I mean, that's where you're looking at something like SOAP. Uh, the thing with REST, though, is can you do APIs that would require transactional things? In a way, yes. The difference is you're making it all in one call. Uh, so the question becomes, if you're trying to do a truly transactional uh, process, you may want to evaluate whether or not REST will meet your needs because in some cases, you could absolutely design it and it will absolutely meet those needs. In some very complex and kind of out there cases, it's not going to meet your needs. Amanda? Uh, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, people have lately have been getting sucked into, I have to use REST all the time. My API needs to be RESTful and that is the only API that ever exists and it, it's not true. Um, so don't be afraid to look at the alternatives. You know, your API doesn't have to be RESTful. And I'm, I can hear full screening again. That's good. And a great example of that, by the way, is OAuth. You know, with OAuth, you're, you're storing state on the server side by returning back, you know, a token that says this is who this user is. Um, you know, so there's ways that you can do that that don't really abide by all the rules of REST. Related, you know, have more complex transactions and have a REST-like uh, or a partial REST uh, API. Yeah, that's great. I mean, software development is all about trade-offs. It's um, you never get pure designs in any pattern they try to follow. Really, outside of academia, it's real life things that are neither pure and simple. Mm -hmm. All right. And the question: uh, All these questions so far have been from their Phil or Lee Davis. So uh, I like these questions. Yeah. Um, all right. How many embedded relations can one resource have before you're doing it wrong? I think that's kind of subject to interpretation. I try to keep it min as minimal as possible. Um, I think you can avoid a lot of this by being very careful with your design process, and you'll start to see um, logical grouping for things that can be sub-resources and things that need to be their, their own endpoint entirely. Uh, same thing. You know, uh, Growing up, my dad would always told me, keep it simple, stupid. Um, and, and I believe that simplicity is key to usability, uh, especially with APIs. With that said, it depends on the complexity of your API. It depends on what you have to do. And, and so it is really, you know, as Amanda said, a relative question where it depends on what you're trying to do in that case. Um, again, by design and mapping out RAMP and saying, these are how these resources uh, relate. These are the things that can work. These are things that can be uh, you know, a sub-resource or these are things that can be in a different resource, you're able to deal with that right off the bat. And really, I think what it comes down to is how do you ensure that your API remains uh, flexible enough that it'll be long-lived? And how do you also make sure you're not making it too complex for your users? And if you can meet both of those needs, I think you can have as many or as few as possible. Yeah, I've seen people that have had five sub-resources before, and that's what they needed, and that worked out fine for them. Uh, other people seem to think that Two is the magic number. Um, I really don't think there is a magic number for this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. For resources, like I said, I agree. I, I think there are cases where it makes sense. I think in most cases, if you have five sub resources, you know, you're, you're probably there's probably a better way to do it. It's kind of like you know, you know in PHP when you create five different methods to change a line of text. There's probably a better way to do that. Um, again, 
but being such a relative situation where it's like it depends on each case, there's really no absolute answer. 52 sub resources. 52. That's the one. Uh, one more question from Lee. Is code on demand in an API ever a good idea? Have you ever implemented it? So I have not actually implemented this, and it sort of scares me a little bit, and that's precisely why I've never done it. Um, I think it's, and a lot of people actually don't know it's a thing, which I think is why we, we don't come across it too often. Um, do you have any profound words on this? I, I actually saw an API that was doing this, and I'm trying to think which API it was, because it was it's, it's one of those, like, I think it's the only API on the web that actually incorporates code on demand. Um, I'm a fan of code on demand. I think code on demand is actually the future of the way the APIs will, will handle themselves because I think it takes all the requirements off of the client side and puts more of the requirements on the server side uh, and really makes it flexible. Um, you know, when Fielding created his dissertation, of course, he was talking about uh, Java servlets. Uh, and I don't think that we were talking about a world where you had PHP, .NET, Ruby, um, and all these numerous languages. I mean, you if you go to these API generation sites, they create uh, SDKs in like 10 different languages now. Um, and I think that's the biggest problem is I think now we're at a case where it makes a lot of sense. There are a lot of issues. Uh, one of the issues is security. You know, do you want to be interpreting or downloading code from another site and you know, writing your API based on that? Um, in some cases like robotics, it may make a lot of sense. Uh, you know, that, that's one place where I really see code on demand APIs being very uh, often used is, again, robotics, right? Pull in, they download the application automatically from an API call. Um, the other problem is the ambiguity of it. You know, again, if you have 10 different languages, that means if you do an application update through the API, you have to send back the language of their choice with 10 different API or different 10 different languages. Um, I, I think the best use case that we can point to on the web today is JavaScript. Or the JavaScript, you can call and get JavaScript back and then parse the JavaScript and run the JavaScript to do something. Uh, I think if we have a uniform style language for code on demand where you get back a format that can then be parsed into PHP or JavaScript or uh, any of the other languages prominent and useful, uh, but again, there has to be security tiers in place. So I, I think like hypermedia uh, code on demand is one of those unexplored areas. You know, I talk about how we don't know hypermedia that well. We haven't like, explored it that well. We, we've been very limited in it. I think we're even more so in code on demand because as Amanda mentioned, it's the only optional constraint on REST and nobody uses it. Um, but I think in the next you know, five to 10 years, we're going to see things transform very differently. I think Condemnate will become a staple in what we're doing. It's just we haven't figured out how to get there yet. Yeah, I guess you could kind of say that's the next step in chaos, right? It's um, self-documenting, self-writing APIs. Yeah, yeah, but it's you know, self-writing, self-interpreting, uh, which, again, yeah. I think is what makes it so scary at one point, you know, because it's what happens if they get hacked? Now you're not just hacking one server and getting information, you've now hacked every single application using that API. And I think that's why we're in still this, this gray area of what are the limitations and how do we do this? Um, and we just, we haven't figured it out yet. I mean, some people are using signed certificates to try to do that, but I still don't think that fixes the issue of if they get hacked. Um, so. Yeah, that's exactly why it scares me is because, you know, your, your infrastructure might get hacked, um, like you said, and then Everybody who's using your API is now prone, and that that just really terrifies me. <laughs> but but imagine if we could do that if we had a way where limits are put in place, and so you had this parser that would grab a non-language uh, and parse it into a language. Uh, like PHP, we talk about not using the exec command, but having the ability to do that and running a safe, uh, validated PHP code that you know is not malicious and be able to do things. Um, 
imagine little things like having your forms automatically correct themselves or auto generate, you know, and uh, there are specs out there like Siren that try to figure this out and help you out with this too. Uh, but I, I don't think that's the answer. You know, um, we talk about hypermedia, I create my own spec called CPHL that tries to incorporate code on demand and, and tries to get information. But like I said, we're not there. We're not at a point where we can say, or, or I can say in good faith that every API should be, you know, deploying code on demand to their customers. Yeah. You are even considering something like that. You, you need to take some serious time. Take more than two weeks to figure that out. Yes. Your API. <laughs> it's definitely not a solved problem. Yeah. Right? No, absolutely. Not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you know, that's a, like, I'm, I'm worried of it, but I'm actually very excited to see where this goes. All right, so I'd like to wrap up the podcast with uh, what conferences will you both be at in the soon-to-be future so that people can, uh, can meet you, can say hey, and can bug you with API questions. Uh, so, well, I guess I'm the first since I started talking. Uh, the next one I'm going to be at is actually Laracon. Um, it's coming up next month. Uh, after that, it looks like I'm going to be at FOSCON in Philadelphia, which is not PHP-specific, but um, still open sourcey. And then after that, it looks like I'm going to be um, at PuppetConf and then finally PHP World. So I'm giving a, a tutorial session. Actually, uh, I'm giving a tutorial session on building an API with Lumen, uh, which is Laravel's micro framework. So definitely come check that out. Ken? Cool. I'm, uh, I'm planning to go to PHP World as well this year, so we can file. Okay. Um, so bring some heckling blocks. <laughs> oh, deal. Bye. Oh me, um, yes, yeah. See, I'm, I'm. This has been a horrible podcast for me. Like, I either had way too much to drink or not enough. I'm not sure which. Uh, like, even the question about Endpoint Studio, like, I don't know. We do stuff. Um, but if you're a large enterprise, you should definitely take a look at for your integration. Take the data and we put it over there. Yes, yeah, so we 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 allow you to connect anything and change everything. You right, got, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think I lost like half your listeners right there. We know uh, you work for yourself, Mike. It's okay. Let's keep going. Wait, wait. Did you guys see the shirt? Look, look oh, at that. Oh, God. Okay. Uh, so the conferences I'll be at, um, the next one will be that conference in uh, Wisconsin Dells, uh, which should be fun. And then after that, Northeast PHP, uh, which if you have a chance to go to Northeast PHP in Boston, it's an amazing, wonderful community conference. Uh, definitely worth checking out. That conference is good, too, just for the record. Just throwing it out there. Uh, for me, I will be throwing at GluttonyCon the weekend after Northeast PHP. So it's the last weekend in August in Boston. We will be eating everything we can find that's good in Boston. And then I will be at the uh, Seattle, uh, the Northwest, Pacific Northwest PHP conference in Seattle which is thrown by the Seattle PHP user group, and then probably PHP World after that. So, uh, yeah. You all should definitely check out conferences. Come say hi if you're at any of the conferences we're at. We'd love to chat. Thank you, both Amanda and Mike, for joining the PHP Town Hall. It was great chatting with you, and hope you have a good night. Thanks. Thanks, guys.